0: Welcome to the Ankler Podcast. This is Sean McNulty from the Wake Up Newsletter here at the Ankler in New York City on the afternoon of Thursday, November 9th. Joined as always uh, by Elaine Lowe and Richard Rushfield in Los Angeles where uh, we have no more strikes in Hollywood. So uh, thanks for listening, everybody. It's been a fun run. Uh, Richard, we just <laughs> we shut this thing down now, right? I'm a little unfamiliar with the protocol. What, what do we do?
1: I don't know. I miss them. It's. Uh, I think it's time for a reunion. Let's get no. let's get oh, Fran and uh, Duncan Crabtree there, and with uh, Chris Kaiser, go all back together and uh, room with David Zaslov and maybe maybe do a party on his yacht, and uh, which he doesn't actually have. I'm not ready to let go, Elaine. Uh, you know, I guess I usually I have to note the time we're recording, which is
0: uh, roughly about twelve twenty uh, Pacific time, but I think this week we don't have to for once. So that's kind our of our nice. long
2: national nightmare is over.
0: Is that is that the spin on this that you've been
1: saying on TV all week?
2: Gosh, I mean, this is it's been a long six months for the industry, hasn't it?
1: Not ideally. Have the how long you'd have your industry shut down. If you could
0: choose. <laughs> we were uh, talking about this in late April. I think, you know, uh, yeah, who had, uh, you know, November 9th as the day. But remember
1: um, that consensus that it was that there would be a strike, but it was going to be a, a short one. Just a, just maybe a week. Was- which time that was, that? was why that?
2: I don't make predictions.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I that think, was- that predict- that, think that was said in April.
0: That was said in July. That was said... Set- <laughs> In September. That was said in October. Yeah, exactly. Uh so everybody's everybody's reputation is is where it is. But uh the town is better for it here in the end, going back to work. And Richard, are, are you kinda sad? Earnings season finishes today. Uh how would you oh, rate wow. the Q three twenty three versus the other
1: Qs this year? You know, what's what's the what's your take here? Ah, my earnings I just got my earnings season outfit uh down. I so yeah. it was, was really looking good for the uh Roku call, I thought I thought, but We'll see if this is all still in fashion at the end of Q4. It'd be hard to say. Well, you can send it back to the cleaners for Q, for the Q4 calls in January.
0: Yeah. So, uh, sure, still still be in, in style then. Uh, we'll dive into some things there to note at WBD and Disney and a little uh, maybe at Endeavor. Uh, plus, we have the gathering of the Ankler's resident box office experts. Did you know we had three, Elaine? We do. You're one of them. I, I didn't. This is
2: news to me.
0: <laughs> you, you, you won the me? summer. You Movie won the enthusiast.
2: summer. Oh, that's right. I did. I did win the summer. <laughs> Thank right, you, Barbie.
0: You, all right. If you forget that you won, you didn't really win. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> the three of us will be reassembling here. Well, we're already assembled. Uh, but to, uh, I guess, redeem ourselves from our summer predictions, and uh, going to take a look ahead to see who the winners are for the uh, holiday box office season, which is kicking off here uh, tomorrow. And then uh, we also have uh, Elaine did a great deep dive into the reality TV business uh, just as the actor strike is coming to a close. Uh, there may be some more labor strife on the way just in time. Uh, just maybe not this weekend, Elaine, we'll take a weekend off and then we'll more strike mm-hmm. next week. Is that all right?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think we can handle that.
0: (laughs) Sorry, put my request in. Um, And we'll have Elaine's interview with uh, two former participants in the Netflix's Love is Blind universe in just a little bit as well. But, you know, first I get to Elaine do my my Monty Hall, let's make a deal, or I guess uh, we have a deal. Do you know who Monty Hall is, Elaine? Let me start with that. Uh
2: uh-huh. <laughs> Sure, sure, Sean.
0: <laughs> <laughs> as I wrote that, I'm like, she wouldn't even know that, that, that reference at all, will she? <laughs> oh, well. All right, so Elaine, please fill us in. Where, where are we at here on Thursday afternoon on uh, November 9th?
2: So as of Thursday afternoon, we don't have the exact language of the contract yet, but we do know that the strike is officially over as of 12.01 today, and actors can now go back to promoting their work. They can go back on set. Of course, the contract still needs to be reviewed and considered by SAG-AFTRA's National Board, after which it'll need to be ratified by the 160,000-person membership. But presumably, if all of that goes through, then then we're done. We are out of this period of labor strife that we've been in for the last six months after the Writers Guild and sag strikes.
0: And that would be, so, I mean, roughly about a Thanksgiving-ish window for ratification, I guess, so probably, you know, I guess we'll see how this goes. But I think the writers was about... Ten days, two weeks ish before final vote.
2: Yeah, I was trying to poke around because I recall yeah, it was about ten days, I think, for for the writers to ratify theirs, and uh, but they could sort of work in the interim, which is in right. Case was, with the,
0: yeah, yeah, they're back to with work. The
2: actors now, but yeah, I imagine it'll take about one and a half, two weeks. So that should take us up to Thanksgiving. But but if they want to, they they apparently can get back to production right away.
0: Yeah, and we should uh, get the details maybe this weekend. We're, you know, it should be the next few days at least, seeing what the actual deal is. Um, but still TBD uh, on on that point. Richard, uh, what's
1: uh, flying in your, your universe about, about SAG this week? I mean i I feel like everyone is just uh, limping to the finish line. Like uh, <laughs> instead of like popping the champagne in Times Square and all celebrating, it's 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 like we we've done that. Okay, we're we're here. Last night, I was at the uh, at gala world premiere of uh, Wish. Uh, oh, from Disney, uh, Disney, Disney the uh, animated, animated film, film which uh, which which the doors opened for about half an hour after the uh, the announcement of the deal. So, not enough time to rush Chris Pine over to get to the party. So, <laughs> may go down as the last starless premiere in, uh, yeah. in Hollywood history. But you know they the. The Disney folks on hand were 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 very happy about it ending and very relieved. One said they they had a junket set up for today, the next morning, and uh, we're wow. just gonna see if they could try to get stars to it. But it, it, it was a very weary sort of relief. It was it wasn't uh wasn't high fiving. It was like that the, the, the worst case scenarios, the very worst case scenarios were gonna be of av- Averted, and that was good. But ending this this half year shutdown, which followed the previous year long shutdown, and all the disruption, dislocation in between, wasn't a lot of wasn't a lot of room for high fiving left
2: there. I mean, listen, I think people are happy without even having seen the deal yet. <laughs> right, we already know as as the I details. Yeah. SAG after members are happy, just as the writers were before they'd actually seen uh, the scope of the deal, because sag after leadership said it, it was a deal of, quote-unquote, extraordinary scope. Uh, we know that there are minimum rate increases, that there are AI protections, which is something that they had really sought after, uh, as well as a streaming participation bonus. Now, we don't know exactly the terms of that and just how beneficial it is. I think I'd read an early report in one of the trades that said, uh, you know it wasn't quite what the the actors had been looking for, but so you know be curious to see exactly what the terms are for any kind of streaming hits, um given what the writers want but um you know the the mood in the room yesterday after the negotiating committee voted unanimously seventeen to zero was you know I was told jubilant I told they were I was told they were very tired tears so People seem happy with it, and you know you got to imagine the union will want a strongly backed package to be able to bring to membership, so that it will be something that's easily ratified. You don't want to bring something where there's a narrow vote.
0: So we'll see. Um, I'm sure Deadpool three will get right back back to shooting. Those guys seem like they were just hanging hanging around outside the set waiting for the word to get back. And broadcast TV is certainly the, the probably the fifth thing that'll get back to work the fastest because the, you know, uh, the writers have been writing for five weeks here. So they should have some scripts. So they should hopefully be back in production uh, thinking it's somewhere end of month or early, early December. But, you know, we'll see you, Lane.
2: Yeah, and now anyone can wear whatever costumes they want, although <laughs> it is a week past Halloween, so I don't know why you would be.
0: <laughs> well, they are actors. They do enjoy a good costume, so you know, you're in a, you never know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and Richard, you know, speaking of AI was a big point. We'll see what the language is and things along those lines, but you had some thoughts around, uh, around this this week.
1: Yeah, well, I, I was just starting to look ahead to life after the strike, and it just struck me how much of our whole conversation – during the strike year and then the years before, it has just been focused so much on preserving Hollywood the way the, the way that it is with exactly what it has in place instead of looking to the future. And we are coming back to a very competitive entertainment landscape where Hollywood is, is just one player and uh, maybe not the biggest player in, in a lot of spaces. And the conversation about AI just strikes me as the most backwards of all the Conversations of just looking to see how we preserve. We, we, we can't have these computers coming in and changing how we do things instead of embracing there's a new tool here and how do we use it and how uh, how how can it augment what what we do and make what we do better and we talk about this we always talk about scripts and writers, but I think effects is the big is as much. Yeah, more important a way uh, that AI is employed and, you know, all sorts of other sort of visual tools and storytelling. And I just urge Hollywood to, in general, like, okay, strikes are behind us. Pandemic is behind us. Big cutbacks are ahead. And we've got to find new paradigms and new ways of engaging uh, new and younger audiences and um, embracing whatever tools we have instead of uh this this fear that oh my god the writers room will be sh- cut in half because computers will be doing half the work which is nowhere near the horizon at this point nothing that anyone is remotely planning or or thinking about uh but, you know it may come to pass in, in one day and uh, you know at the basis everyone's rights and copyrights should be protected but first of all hollywood doesn't get to shut down ai development hollywood True. Isn't isn't the boss of AI, and these tools are going to be there. And if we want to survive as storytellers, which is in question, by the way, we should be we should be looking at how how we could do what we do on on a, on a bigger scale, more effectively.
0: Well, there is this fighting change element, Richard. Yeah, you mentioned where yeah go. Uh, you know, you can line up examples of that through history and how well it's worked out for anybody who's you know set, set on the sidelines of anything and just said, well, well, you know, we're going to keep doing it the way we've been doing it versus trying to be creative with it. I mean, protections are important, certainly. But, you know, you hear a lot of – I read occasionally these uh, missives from Silicon Valley and technology saying, oh, well, we can – you just let the AI do it. And, like, they've never been on a set in their life, and they've never seen a TV show being put together and seeing the creative process up front and being like, yeah, you can do that. Good luck. Um, getting a product that a people are going to want to watch or engage with, like they don't. The creative process is, as we all have seen, it. <laughs> if it was so easy, everybody would do it, and everything would be a hit. It's like, well, the real, the secret sauce is is people, and always will be people. And it's not like, yes, you could have someone write this, and then you know what? Oh, when they go on the set, the uh, actor didn't like that line. Go rewrite it, and, it's, and you got to convince them that that's the right line, or whatever, or the, whatever it might be that comes up in the course of a production or I know what, the weather changed. Uh, Yeah. All right. No, that person's sick. No, that, you know, it's like the the 20,000 things that
1: come up in production. And how many, how many shows go, you know, the, the, everything has been set up perfectly. The deal, (laughs) the IP, everything is right. And and it's a giant movie and they've committed $200 million. And somehow the actors just don't gel on screen. Right. Just they, they, for what reasons that nobody can quite define, they just, don't play right on on, on on screen, and there you go. And, or, and, com, or conversely. Yeah.
2: Or, or, you know, some of the technology out there, though, can actually really tweak, when we're talking about on-screen talent, can really even tweak their performance, which is kind of wild to watch. Like, Sean, you and I were at the Bloomberg conference some weeks back, and there was a, a panel where they were showcasing some of this AI technology, and so they, you know, showed a performance And then they said, well, what if we wanted to tweak it so, you know, she's a little... Sadder or something, and they—that was something that they were capable of having captured her image, and so it's—it's it's, there is the ability there to actually change the entire performance, which you can make those creative decisions and basically plug it into a software, which is sort of wild to think about for anybody who's like, well, you know, the technology isn't really there yet, and I—I I don't know that it's there on the writing front, but on the 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 acting front, on the post-production front, uh, you know, a lot of that is is a lot closer than we think. Yeah.
0: But even that is still human guess. It's like, oh, well, that may be the right move. It may not be. You know, you may be, <laughs> the things that the audience may not respond the way that to making that adjustment and it may actually throw, you know, so there's still, I mean, you're telling me you can do more. And it's back to the Richard's point about the tools and how you use them. Um, again, it doesn't, that doesn't guarantee the movie's going to be successful or people are going to, you know, share it on TikTok, you know, a billion times or whatever. But you're entirely right. And the, that's where we'll see what these protections are, Elaine, in the SAG deal. But like, What's the actor's right in that, or what is you know what is the kind of protections where you know you can you, know, you can CGI Elvis on top of someone at this point and make an Elvis movie in twenty twenty four if you wanted to, on a, on a you know on a on a on a visual basis, um and put his voice in and or sub in Austin Butler or whatever you want to do, yeah, there's a lot of nuance in this topic for sure, but the ability only I think you're right. I mean, again, this is the end of twenty twenty three. Where are we at in 2026? I mean, you know, like this is not going to be like the end game here. So let's assume you're going to be able to kind of do whatever you want. I still think there's just going to be that element of people in the room that in the no matter what you can do, you still need that. It's still a very collaborative process to bring anything to life. And even then, there's no guarantee that the thing's going to work.
1: You know, I, I recall back in my uh, newspaper days. That there was a lot of resistance in newsrooms to to changing and uh, accepting internet. I remember Michael Kinsley in a speech noting that a lot of these problems will be solved actuarially meaning the current generation that is objecting will not be there forever. And, uh, <laughs> right. you know, there's 23-year-olds getting out of film school right now who are not particularly sentimental about Herman Mankiewicz had his typewriter facing northeast when he uh, <laughs> wrote Sin Cain, so that's the only way a script could be written. And, and like, young generations, like, this, if there's a new toy for them, they want the new toy. They'll start playing with it, and they'll find uses for it, and they'll find... You know, they're, and they're not looking for it as, oh, I can save time on writing the chase seed by saying, you know, computer, give me a chase scene. Young people want to express themselves and are looking for better ways to do it. And they will find better ways. And I, I feel like a lot of this is an old person's argument. So... My fellow, my fellow young young people, <laughs> and I will. Uh, yes, yes, of course be, I'm be blazing a trail <laughs> to the future. Yeah, very true. Uh,
0: anyway, a great read over there. You can go, uh, of course, check that out over at theankler.com. dot I'm um, going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back and dive into Hollywood rediscovering quality. Speaking of <laughs> things that are old, they're new again. And we're going to dive into our expert predictions for the holiday box office season. Plus, of course, we have Elaine's dive into the world of reality. A lot of tea to spill there. But um, we'll be right back after this break. All right. Before we uh, dive into our next topic, I want to just uh, give a quick heads up to a, a great new read uh, from Andy Lewis, who does The Optionist here at the Ankler, to kind of tracking all the latest and greatest in literary properties coming onto the market. But he has a, a different kind of piece dropping this weekend for Veterans Day uh, centered around uh, Alan Alda. Last year, he auctioned off the actual boots and dog tags that he wore on MASH, but unknown until now was that they were actually from two real World War II soldiers Uh, turned out to be a a black man from the South and a a Jewish man from New York City. And Andy dug into the records and actually tracked down their their surviving descendants to tell their story for for Veterans Day. And this is a really cool and interesting piece, kind of intertwining TB history with uh, our country's history. And you can go check that out uh, over at theankler.com this weekend. It was a really good read from Andy. So just to recommend to check that out. And again, I remember Veterans Day uh, technically falls on Saturday this weekend, but is observed on Friday, November
1: 11th. So uh, be sure to uh, thank those who have served our country, uh, past and present. And, you know, I just, I, I, I just remember that finale and just saying so- someday they're going to get back together again. And just like the sadness that they weren't going to get to hang out at the Swamp or Rosie's anymore. And just believing that the gang would get back together. And they kind of did for Aftermath. Uh, right, right. Sort of. Ruined everything. And uh, <laughs> and here we seekers. are, year, years later, auctioning off the, the the boots and dog tags and burying the dream of the MASH reunion.
0: Yeah, but the, the story still lives on. And uh, certainly I think that's still the biggest finale, Richard, ever in, of television. Oh, maybe, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Elaine probably wasn't around for that, I'm going to guess.
2: I do yeah. like Alan Alda, though. <laughs> okay, yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> What's
1: that love about Alan Alda? He's, come and, on, um, he's the in In the early years of MASH. Oh, okay. <laughs> things
0: went a little off the rails in so, the years right. there we'll get into a MASH podcast another time uh, so uh, pivoting uh, a little off of that you know uh, Richard good news Disney's only gonna make the good movies from now on so you know <laughs> they've solved the problem uh, Bob Iger's thoughts are quality is now job one so apparently that wasn't the case just uh, if you're wondering but they, they've made the announcement Going
1: back to quality, Richard. So we should be very happy about that. The flight to quality. It's its a great uh, thing for everything. And yeah, I mean, they, it worked out really well for them when all their movies were hits. So I don't know why <laughs> they decided to stop making just I really hits. I don't know uh, what board meeting that was in. Yeah. <laughs> but it, the downturn did coincide with when their big divisions started have, having to turn out lots of TV shows at the same time. Who could have guessed that the quality would suffer from that?
0: Yeah, and I think that's that was essentially the the gist of what Iger was saying. And whether coincidentally or not, there was a, a profile of Scott Stuber, the head of Netflix Films and Variety this week, which uh, with a very sing- similar theme, Richard, saying we're we're only going to make uh, 25 to 30 films a year now, Richard. So problem solved at Netflix. Uh, you know, just to be very relieved to hear that. So, so they'll be twice as good. Three times as good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what you're saying is, it's going to be twice as good. But Richard, you know, as this kind of day one of back to work in Hollywood. But, uh you know, it's really stepping into kind of this, this new era where obviously there was a lot of layoffs and pullbacks over the past year and a half at this point, or definitely the past year. But, you know, there's maybe, uh, again, a six-month break in all of this that just didn't uh, equate there. But the world we're coming back to is, you know, we've talked about it here for a while. It's definitely not going to be what it was, but now we're back. You know, there's no more strikes at all. So, like, Welcome to day day one of your new reality post-streaming bubble and all these things that didn't make sense anymore. Like, this is free and clear here for the road ahead, and we'll find out what this is like, right?
1: The thing about it is the major theme of the legacy studios, at least before the strike, was cost-cutting. So now they're coming back, and after the new contracts, everything is much more expensive. So how do you solve that other than you make a lot less? And uh, which was the direction they were going in already. So we're still at a point, it's still about 600 shows compared to 250 10 years ago, which people already thought was too many.
0: It's just going to be smaller. You know, it's just as simple as that. It's not like they're not going to make TV shows or movies, but, you know, this this reality that everybody lived in since essentially mm-hmm. 2016, 2015, is you're going back to a time, you know, if you came into the industry, any time in the past eight years you're going to meet a reality that, you know, that you are not familiar with that somebody, you know, if you have been around for 20 years, you'll be like, oh, this feels very familiar. This feels like it was like pitching a show in 20, 2005. Although now you don't have network TV buying 30 pilots a year and doing any of that stuff either. So, you know, the TV world is definitely scaling back and yeah, this is, this is the new reality to it. So.
2: And that'll be saving them $2 billion in content spend in fiscal twenty four
0: exactly right. Yeah, so they also announced they're going to be uh, spending only 25 billion uh in 2024 uh, instead of uh, circa 27 billion and, and it should worth noting a good 10 billion of that is sports rights alone. So that's not even in, you know, movies and TV. So you're talking, you know, roughly 15 million dollars, 15 billion dollars across ABC, you know, 20th TV, Marvel, Star Wars, you know, ABC News, you know, all that stuff is in there in that 15 billion, which is uh a little bit below Netflix was still around, I think, about seventeen billion. So um, for all in, and Netflix their- had
2: been flat for the last couple of years, I think, right around like seventeen, eighteen billion. And so this yep. is really the first, I think, real significant pullback. Uh, would you say, Sean, that we've seen from any of the major studios? <sighs>
0: Yeah, I mean, Warner Brothers hasn't put a number on theirs either. No one was saying anything along those lines of like, how you make it up for six months of pause? Like there was nothing like that on on these calls.
2: Oh, that's so 2019.
0: (laughs) Exactly. But even, you know, and Richard, with like, you know, the writers have been back for uh, going on six weeks next week. There hasn't been a boom, at least reporting wise, a boom of spec scripts uh, sold or any kind of projects announced. I haven't really seen a lot of that. Granted, you know, going into the strike, the writer's strike, a lot of people over, you know, kind of bought a lot of stuff going in the door, but it's been rather quiet in terms of, oh, we you know, got this new project
1: and we'll see if the actors being back, we can attach talent to it. No, I mean the thing I hear from all the studio executives I talk to is going to be much more. Careful about what we what we greenlight and what we buy.
2: We're going to see a really tough ripple effect through the rank and file. I was talking to a writer uh, on one of the WGA picket lines a couple of months ago who said that their show was supposed to have premiered fall of twenty three, and now it's been pushed back. Probably, likely, to be pushed back an entire year. And it's like, well, what happens then when you're, you know, sorting out your writer's room schedules, when you're, you know, trying to set up this show for success, when you're figuring out how many of those writers you can still keep if that show goes to a second season? We're gonna see a real accordion crunch of logistical things happening here now that the strikes are over.
0: Yeah. Yeah. not even mention just production lo- logistics too and windows and what talent's available and all the other stuff that's going to be going on. So uh, it won't be a quiet week next week for sure. I think that's uh, one certainty we all have. But uh, speaking of quality, Richard, we have the Marvels in theaters this Friday, kind of the de facto kickoff of holiday movie season here in Hollywood. Ollie Disney kind of kicks both of them off. Disney's uh, the Marvels is another, you know, Two hundred and twenty million dollar budgeted uh, fare for
1: Disney. Uh, Richard, please donate if you can. It's it's for the kids <laughs> if you can this weekend. I mean, what's happened to the superhero sector uh, over the last year and a half or so is uh, startling. Many people thought superheroes were the future of films that that this would go on forever and and superheroes were the formula. And we'll see how it goes with the Marvels. It has the looks of an underperformer. But uh, but we'll say about that.
0: Yeah, not a great year uh, across the board. Ant Man kind of kicked it off there with you know it, it broke even or made a little bit of money, but not the you know anywhere near the previous ones. You know, Guardians Three did okay. We sort of had the Flash, we had uh, Blue Beetle, things that just you know weren't performing for the superhero genre. But Elaine, you know it's your favorite time, in, in, the, in the great tradition of Premiere Magazine, which you still have not asked me to borrow, by the way. So anytime <laughs> you want those, they're still. Still, my mom's garage. So, you know, I still
2: need proof that this was a real magazine. (laughs) Sorry, I just angered like a legion of film bros on Twitter by saying (laughs) exactly next
0: time I come to LA, I'm bringing one out for you. So, there you go. You can actually hold the
1: magazine. Uh, well, sorry, so I do want to start. How was Wish? Uh, Wish is good, it's not a a giant, sort of explosive uh, Disney animated, but it's very old fashioned feeling. I mean, it's Disney's 100th birthday, which be reminded of, and they literally. Said, "How about you do a movie where the pitch is Disney's theme song? When you wish upon a star is, oh. and they say, when do you wish upon a star? Why don't we why don't we break down how that works? What's the mechanics that happens there?' Then we get inside that uh, trope. You know, we're worst pitches to start out a movie with, uh, <laughs> but it was it was almost uh, almost like a infomercial for the Disney ethos there. But it, it's it's oh, not bad. It's good. Right. It has music, which always helps, and um. The most important factor to determine it: the deep-fried Oreos at the premiere uh, were uh, were a tour de force, and uh, I think a strong predictor of good things to come. <laughs> I don't know, Richard. When the food outshines the movie review, that's never a good sign. The food sign, always but, comes Well, uh, for you, know, the shoot,
0: the well, for you o-
1: that's true. That's yeah. That's yeah, a rare the, a rare the, affair the, the, where the movie shines I, outside. I can't the, think of a film that is that that would <laughs> yeah. uh, stand bigger than the buffet, but. Uh, <laughs> Well, the the, the record continues. All right, Elaine. So uh, let's see who
0: wins the uh, $10 gift card to the Fox commissary this time out. You won the (laughs) summer. So when we land at that point after the holiday season, what will be the top three films, uh, highest-grossing films from now until that point?
2: And these are films that premiere basically from this weekend through Christmas.
0: Anytime, it. You you can pick the Marvels if you like. So, yep.
2: Okay. I think the easy pick is the Beyoncé concert. Okay. Uh, for the same reasons as Taylor Swift, I think that's going to be an easy one. Um, I'm going to go with Mr. Chalamet, Wonka. I mean, All I right. think you've got you've got IP, you've got uh, a floppy haired popular star. How, who can go <laughs> wrong with that? And then it's worked before <laughs> exactly. And then for the third one, because. Barbie turned out to be such a winner for me over the summer. And I know, Richard, you thought that was kind of a wild card. And I remember I was like, I think this is just like slightly, it's just unhinged and fun enough to work. Um, Now, not having actually seen this, but having only read the reviews, I'm going to go with a quirky one. I think Poor Things has just gotten such raves coming out. Um, I don't know. Maybe it could translate to a mass audience. Maybe it could.
1: Okay. Searchlight would love to see that. Uh, okay, got it. Richard, what do you got? Can I can I do uh, my my wish casting version or, or the actual prediction? Whichever one you want to be held accountable for in about two months. Uh, well, so okay, I'm gonna. Well, I'll start first with uh, uh, the the animated choice that I think we will do. I, th- I think migration from uh, Illumination there, script by by Mike White of the White Lotus. I, I'm predicting that for breakout animated smash. I'll go with Wonka uh, also. And I feel like Color Purple could uh, sell some tickets. I feel like that. It's a musical. It's a beloved title. It's got Oprah involved. I feel like that could do well. I, I'd also like there's an undercard race here. That December 8th, you have three um, icon, icons of film nerddom uh, coming out with new movies on the on the same day. You have Poor Things. Uh, as Lane mentioned, you have the the new and possibly last film from uh, Miyazaki, "Boy and the Heron," and you have Jonathan Glazer, who had this uh, this crazy career. He's been, become this icon of film nerddom with only three films in like twenty years that are on Black Misters with uh, "Zone of Interest," which I saw in Toronto and is very uh, intense. Not a uh, have them dancing in the aisles, but paraly eh? this will be a historic day for film nerds exactly they have December eighth all for themselves uh yeah, and the calendar
0: is a little I actually guess it probably always is loaded Thanksgiving as you know a pretty big big slate christmas and the december twenty second have a big time, but early december the first two weeks are
1: really not much at all, so it's going to be here's uh, here's one crazy thing with with all the open space this year. Warner Brothers has Wonka. Aquaman two and Color Purple all coming out within ten days. Yep, I do not. I do not envy
0: the uh, Warner Brothers uh, publicity department. That's I guess why uh, Chalamet and, and Jason Momoa are hosting SNL this month, so they get that that off yeah. the list. But uh, yeah, no, that'll be they're going to be uh, they're the uh, yeah they have the most releases there the big titles. Uh, in uh in December. All right. Well, I learned nothing from the summer, so uh, I'm gonna go with <laughs> I go Wonka. I think is I think that's gonna be number one. I think just Chalamet in that genre, and certainly with the the hit track record there, and I think that's gonna be the the movie to beat. Uh, I'm gonna I threw in Wish, Richard. So I you know I think that it could catch some of that Frozen magic if it has the quality. Again, you've seen it. I have not, and I don't you know I don't know per se. But this is a Disney animation film, not a Pixar film but i think elemental got people back into it and the little mermaid you know kind of gaining that that goodwill back among the disney fans and the and movies so i'm betting that's going to translate to uh, some long box office over the uh, holidays they have uh, trolls 3 comes out the the weekend before which you know probably will open and do all right but i think that that has a chance to really become that film it's a musical richard they find that hit song out of it you know that encanto moment that's also something that could take you know to take hold so so question marks, but say we have Wonka Wish, and uh, and then I just go with Migration only because I, it's your point. I mean, it's, it's hard to bet against Illumination and that film, and certainly. I think total run will have you know a big a big gross again. That could be one of those films that the first two weeks are okay, but that's the only family film in the marketplace until until March. So I think you know that that alone could do
1: it. There's a thing where we we have we're, we have no one touched on, which is Apple's billion dollar bet on Napoleon. Yep, we have not talked about that. Which uh, the, the the smart money says a uh, a costume picture about a long gone emperor uh, is is not going to take tickets I, I i feel like that could have some oppenheimer-like potential uh it
0: could i mean it look it's ridley scott um ridley you know scott, it's, it's, joaquin it's, team it's, phoenix
1: is uh, it look
0: the trailer looks good uh, you know i just don't know that I, again highest grossing that versus wonka i'm like okay yeah will it be the adult choice of the holiday movie season yeah but um how much money is that going to bring in for you that's where i'm i i do not know and it's it really was was it I don't know, another th- maybe another three-hour movie, Richard, where I don't know that that's going to help it out either.
2: I don't know. Boomer um, dads re- do love their war movies. So dragging their families to it around, when does it come out? Thanksgiving?
1: And I'll, I'll be keeping these predictions. I've, I've written them down. so I have the so official I'm, record here. Well, my, my record's the official record. Yeah, so double if,
0: documented. We're locking our documents so nobody can change the Google If you document, need to see so. what we predicted, just ask me. I'll, uh, I'll, just, I'll show you. The, so much
2: yeah. is on the, <laughs> the line. Paper. Personal glory. Funny, my,
0: yeah. <laughs> what what I wrote down for Richards, not what he had written down for himself. It's really <laughs> weird. You, you, this, this you changed, weren't paying. So. You, I,
1: I saw you. I saw you uh, answering some emails during the.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know I mean? that, that, that's right. Yes, I was writing it down. Anyway, all right, we're gonna move on here. Uh, take a quick break, but uh, we're gonna dive into the underbelly of the reality TV business, or see what Elaine learned. The things that on reality TV shows are not what they seem. Re- Elaine, some breaking news there. So <laughs> shocker, but we'll find out what tea you have to spill uh, right after the break. All right. Uh, So Elaine, you auditioned for a reality
2: show this week. Do I have the? Is that right? Am I notes correct on this? That is correct, Sean. I auditioned for the next season of Cutthroat Kitchen.
0: (laughs) <laughs> oh, oh, my. Oh, boy. Okay. I, I could totally see Richard on Big Brother. I'm just saying right now. that I could see that being a thing that he definitely could uh to, could win on. Richard, keep that in the back of your hat there. But I guess, yeah, so as you dove into the world of reality TV this week, With some, uh, what did you learn from your conversations with uh, many former reality TV participants, writers, producers, uh, and the world of unscripted?
2: Right. So there's been a lot of chatter this past summer, given the writers and actors being on strike. There's been some chatter among the reality TV world, a, a you know, famous mostly mostly non-unionized place there are a couple of unionized reality shows like talent shows like if you look at American Idol or America's Got Talent the hosts the judges they're all unionized but you know the contestants who come on aren't same thing for dating shows same thing for pretty much all of Bravo's lineup uh, you know keeping up with the Kardashians So that's, you know, been an area where there's been sort of movement about like, you know, should we unionize, you know, and I've heard from, uh, I, I spoke to two of Netflix's Love is Blind alum who went on this dating show. And for anyone not familiar with it, the premise is you are in a pod. You're trying to figure out if you can connect with a potential mate before actually ever laying eyes on them. And it's supposed to be this sort of like psychologically based, you know, love experiment. But, you know, there was—we talked to Katie Warren, remember, Sean, at Insider, about her her big uh, deep dive into the show. Uh, You know, there were some questionable working conditions, living conditions— And in light of everything, I happened to talk to Nick Thompson and Jeremy Hartwell. They were both on season two, uh, and they now have a foundation, You can. It's the Unscripted Cast Advocacy Network, where because of their experiences on the show, they've decided to start this foundation that offers mental health care and legal resources to uh, reality TV participants. So, you know, had an interesting chat with them about what led them, what experiences on the show led them to create this, and also... You know, what potential is there for this space to unionize because it's really it's a trickier space, right? It's not like scripted TV where you have people who are making careers out of being on-screen actors. People who go on dating shows, people who go on cooking shows. They're ostensibly they're they're one and done ideally. Like if you go on American Idol, yeah, you're looking to make a career as a performer, but a lot of these other home improvement shows, you just want your house redone and then you want to get out of there. So, you know, we sort of went over the intricacies. The story really goes into the intricacies of like you know, what's feasible and, and if working conditions are not ideal, how do you go about improving them? So and that's both with the you know writers and producers of reality TV, as well as people who appear on screen. Um, and so, you know, our next interview here is uh, a chat with uh, Nick and Jeremy from from Love is Blind.
0: All right. So without further ado, let's get to the conversation with uh, Nick Thompson and Jeremy Hartwell from
2: Love is Blind. Okay, Nick and Jeremy, you're both founders of the You Can Foundation, which is the unscripted cast advocacy network, which provides reality TV participants with legal and mental health resources. So as I understand it, this came about because of both of your experiences as participants on Netflix's dating show Love is Blind. I would love to hear more about what exactly led to that.
3: So the foundation, though unnamed at the time, was something Jeremy brought to my attention about a year before we decided to launch it. I I say we, but I think he was going to launch it with or without me. But um, as time went on uh, and I was further and further removed from the whole experience, um, from my very public divorce and the impacts that that was having on me personally, I really started reflecting on everything and realizing how messed up it was from almost, you know, the get-go of of arriving for filming, uh, if not before that. And as I was able to sort of process what I had been through over the last, you know, two years, I really realized like something's wrong here and someone has to do something. And I don't want to be the person to do something, but if that's what it comes down to, I'm going to step up and be Uh, you know, one of the people that do something. So after a year of pitching me on it, I think with some, some of my own flavor added to it, I was
4: happy to join Jeremy in the crusade. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Just to reiterate what Nick said, it was really brought about from our experience on Love is Blind and understanding that there was, uh, the the way reality TV was being produced was not taking into account the needs, uh, the health concerns, labor laws, even just basic human rights. It wasn't taking those into account and was often violating them. And it had been going on for such a long time and the industry had not corrected itself. And it didn't seem like anything, anyone was doing anything about it or anyone was there for these cast members to offer support. So, it was something to fill that vacuum, fill that gap, and to provide a need where there was no service for that and as Nick said, I'm so glad he was on board for this. I'm, <laughs> I am I probably would have launched it without him, but it certainly would not have been as successful. He's been so critical into bringing a broader perspective to this with his platform and his outreach and uh, so grateful for that. But I think an important thing to consider is UCAN is not about Love is Blind. It's not about Netflix. We focus on that from a storytelling perspective because that's what we know, right? That's experiential for us. That's what drove us to create this, right? But it's about the large industry as a whole. And so even though we may refer to Love is Blind as examples of why we started this foundation, it's really not, that's not the focus. The focus is on helping cast members from all across the world in every single reality show where they experience these issues and on advocating for change across the entire industry. Mm. And just to add to that too, we have spoken with over 100 cast
3: members uh, with the foundation and they span across the world, across industries, across Show styles. I mean, we have cooking shows, we have love shows, we have dating shows, we have game shows, we have contests. We have people we've spoken to from the talk show days, and and you know the same stuff was going on there when when it was sort of the origin of the reality TV we watch today.
2: Yeah, and, and I want to hear more about those cast members' experiences. But first, let's go back to yours, Nick. You said that it was messed up from the get-go. Uh, you know, what was your experience on on Love Is Blind? So from
3: the moment you arrive, you're slowly sort of groomed to this ability of giving up your autonomy and giving up your individuality, in a sense. As you get there, pre-show, you know you have to give up your phone and internet access for three weeks, which, you know, even reflecting on that, like thinking about how that removes every single support system that you have in your life while you're making these life-altering decisions, even that is in its own a little bit of a, of a messed up situation. But then after that, you know, they slowly take away your wallet, your IDs, your passports, they go through your luggage. And, you know, when you have all of that happen, you're literally at the beck and call of, of what they want you to do and when they want you to do it. Uh, You don't have any individuality or autonomy to leave uh, without a producer's permission. And even if you decide to, they don't give you your, you know, wallet or passport back. What are you really going to do when you, when you leave? Um so that was kind of where I was like that's that whole situation is messed up and then reflecting back on filming so many hours a day like up to 20 hours a day sometimes not being able to get sleep not being able to get sunlight not getting um you know what I believed was adequate food or water and it's just this whole experience is you know there there's elements of it that I think are great and that could work and that have the ability to to bring people together but when you're under those conditions and you don't have any recourse you don't really have any body autonomy of what you're going to do and what you're going to say or where you're going to go and what you're going to do. It's just a very oppressive situation to be in. And I just don't think that we have to produce reality TV at the expense of people's wellness, people's labor, people's uh, mental health or any of those elements for that matter.
2: So you were prepared to give up your phone. Like these were sort of the conditions of the, the the social experiment, as it's called, right? So it sounds like you weren't prepared to give up your wallet or your passport. Were these things that the producers had told you about beforehand?
3: I would imagine that. So I can't for sure say in one of my, you know, 50 conversations or whatever I had that it wasn't mentioned, but I feel like that's something that would have stuck out to me. As someone who is a traveler, like I know how important it is to have your ID and to have your passport. Just to move around. I mean, you know, to have your wallet and your cash, I didn't have any cash, but people did have your money taken away from you. And when this really started to think during the process, is when, you know, we were isolated in our hotel rooms and I was thirsty and I was hungry and I wasn't receiving what I, you know, would consider adequate food and water. Um, And I couldn't even have the option to order DoorDash or have something delivered because I didn't have any money. And then when you go to, you know, Mexico, as we did in our case, for me, it was like, I'm in this foreign country. I'm not even in a resort the first few days, and I don't have an ID. And I don't have
4: my credit cards or cash. Yeah, I can say with complete confidence, they never mentioned that to me. If I had known that I wouldn't have gone on the show. And I suspect a lot of people wouldn't either, which is why they don't mention it. Because that's, that's a big red flag. And by the time they came around to take our cell phones, which we did know about, At the same time, they also took our wallets, you know, all the things that Nick talked about. And it was kind of too late to push back. Um, And on top of that. And they they, do it slowly,
3: too. They do it over time. What
2: do you mean slowly?
3: And over like a couple hours,
4: they give you a meal
3: after they take your phone. And it's like, okay, now it's time to take your passports. We're going to hold them for you in case you go to Mexico. And just it's kind of like this whole storytelling mentality as they slowly strip away your autonomy.
4: Yeah, well, it's I mean, it's that's core to psychological manipulation. Um, You look at it in like, uh, you know, cults are kind of a good example of this, right? They don't throw everything at you at once. There's like a storytelling perspective so that you become embedded in it because it's like the frog boiling water analogy. If you put everything out there at once, it's going to raise alarm bells. So it's it's hallmark to psychological manipulation. By the time you understood there was some gaslighting and some deception going on and some things we didn't expect and weren't communicated ahead of time about, we were kind of our already in that process. And so it was it became harder just mentally and emotionally to push back against it.
2: Did you bring up those concerns to producers over the course of time as these things were taken away? And, you know, Nick, you mentioned that you felt like you didn't have enough food or water. You know, did you bring those concerns up? And what happened when you did?
3: Yeah, so I was I was concerned about the phone at first just because I was leading a whole team of like sixteen people at work at the time and to not have any access to me was a little scary. So we we did find some workarounds for that. I was able to give my producer's phone number to, you know, my contact at work that's my peer in case of an emergency, which we used a couple of times. But when it came down to the other stuff, like we were all asking for water. Um, whether we were on set or in our hotel rooms. There's even a scene in there where Kyle jokes about there being three grapes and we better get ready to fight over them. Uh, That actually made the cut. Uh, But yeah, these were expressed pretty often, I would say. I I know it was something that just seemed at the time, it seemed like it wasn't really nefarious. It was just sort of people have other things to do. But you know, when you're a production that big and to make sure that People have food and water that they feel adequate for themselves, I think is, you know, base level of what you should do. And this isn't just our experience, like despite the food montages you may see in later seasons of the show, you talk to anyone across pretty much any show and you get the same experience, lack of food, lack of water. Lots of alcohol.
4: Yeah, I think it's important to also get away from this sort of layman's understanding or this this common reaction to psychological manipulation of, or why didn't you do this? Why didn't you react like this? Why didn't you push back, right? We We need to get away from that because it's inaccurate. And all you have to do is look back on psychology. Just go to like... You know, talk to a psychologist, look at psychological experiments like the Stanford prison experiment, the Milgram experiment, right? That's not how the human brain works. When you're under that level of manipulation, you're not thinking, you're just sort of following instruction. You're going with it because that's what you're being programmed to do. But there are little red flags that go off in the back of your head, but you're just not you're not pushing back in the way you normally would because again you are under the influence of sophisticated psychological manipulation but that that doesn't mean you know subconsciously you don't feel something's off
2: nick you mentioned that you've you know both of you have spoken to to other cast members on other reality shows tell me a little bit about the things they've told you and any kind of similarities you've drawn to your own experiences?
3: I think my biggest takeaway from the last few months with the UCAN Foundation is that I had it good compared to what a lot of people experienced. Um, And that's from a production perspective. We've spoken to people. I've had people on my podcast where we talk about what their experience was and their stories, um, endless stories of, of the food deprivation, the water deprivation, being forced into situations that they don't want to be in that have caused crimes, uh, sexual assault, uh, people needing medical attention, uh, not being able to get it. And then, of course, there's the whole side of editing, which positions people in a poor spot that could literally ruin their lives. Um, under the the guise of oftentimes defaming edits, misrepresentation, which it all says they can do to you in the contract. Which you know, I read the contract, and you know, I read that part, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to do anything that isn't me. That's out of character, so I don't have to worry about that. But then you hear stories of cast members where things were edited out of order to make them look like they cheated, or things were withdrawn, so you can't talk to your child until you say what I need you to say for this scene. Taking scenes in specific areas and using the dialogue in another scene. And so it's just a very, very uh, damaging situation for people during production. And then those people get it after production uh, as well. So, you know, my heart goes out for some of these horror stories that I've heard. Um, People have lost their businesses. Uh, People have been harassed uh, online. They've been harassed in real life. It's just, it's horrifying to hear the stories and they don't have any recourse as a cast member, but then the production
4: companies don't take any responsibility after they do this to people. Yeah. And I think to add to that, like there's, there's table stakes in terms of what we hear from every single cast member. And that is the the, the basics of the manipulation, the sleep deprivation, the food deprivation, the withholding, the water, the controlling of the schedule, right? That's, Every single cast member, and from there, it just could escalate right there 's varying levels of like psychological manipulation all the way up to extreme psychological torture i 'll give you an example. There was one cast member who talked about an experience to where like the the members on her ca- on her show were tricked into thinking they were in a plane crash and were about to die. They went up into a plane for a uh, like a challenge I think it was a skydiving challenge but it was a setup. So the the pilot said that they were going to crash and it was emergencies and there was nothing they could do because it was a small plane um, and they were all going to die and like hurtled towards the ground. But it was a setup by the producers. And so obviously the plane didn't crash. They got off the ground. And apparently the lesson was life is short. So you never know when you're going to die. Oh God, that's wild. Um, Yeah, but that stuff does not shock me anymore because I hear it so frequently from so many people and it is infuriating. Because how can this keep happening? How can people do this to other people? And why is nobody taking... What, what, why aren't these people who are doing this being held accountable? That's torture. Yeah, and you know, you, you can take... This has been documented um,
3: outside of anything we've said, but look at the ultimatum, for example. The people who have joined the first few seasons of, and variations of the ultimatum were told they were going on a psychologically-based show that would help them determine if they wanted to marry their partner. And then they got there and realize they were not just going to be going through a psychological experiment they were going to be taken out of their relationship and put into relationships with somebody else and see if they could survive that yeah they weren't they
4: weren't told it was a shared dating thing up front <laughs> yeah. that was sprung on them on camera
2: and yeah. you've spoken to to participants on the show several oh yeah oh wow And so tell me a little bit about the aims of the foundation then. I mean, there's the legal support, the mental health care. What is your work with these participants on an individual level? And what are you hoping to achieve more broadly?
4: Yeah, I'll, I'll just start. We have three strategic pillars, essentially, in terms of that support our mission. The first one is cast support. And that's where we match cast members with uh, any professional services they might need, whether it's we, we focus predominantly on legal services uh, and mental health services, but sometimes just want to talk to somebody. Right. But on, on top of that, it's it's prepping them like, you know, we want to provide support before during and after production, right? What, what are the resources that they might know to help them make a better decision to decide if they want to go on a show um, or how can they deal with things during a show or after the show? So the first one's cast support. The second one is public education, right? Which is sort of what we're engaged in right now. It's helping people understand that it, it really is actually far worse in, in reality in these productions than people even realize. And, you know, the, I think the important thing I want to focus on is we are not trying to tear down reality TV. We're not trying to kill this industry. It's about creating something better because it can be better and it should be better. So that's the second part is the public education. And that leads into the third part, which is advocacy for change, right? what can we do? How can we push forward this agenda so that we have ethical production of reality TV? So between those three things, that's where we see UCAN's mission going. And that's where, you know, whenever someone donates, it's going toward directly towards one of those three missions. You know, I spend a lot of time talking to cast
3: members and a lot of time doing the advocacy organizing work that is required. And we talk a lot about unionization, like that's a lever to pull. Uh, That's not going to solve every issue, right? But we need to get basic labor practices in place. And remember that we are working with human beings and we've decided as a society that we are going to have labor laws, we're going to have regulation, and somehow reality TV's has escaped that. So getting these basic fundamental rights implemented into reality TV production and cast members is a huge priority of ours. And it's going to take a lot of work, but, you know, there's going to be a continuing effort to make sure that we can advocate and get that change in the industry.
2: Mm, and tell me a little bit about the feasibility of that because when you look at the way scripted TV actors or scripted film actors are unionized, I mean this is their career, their profession. When you're looking at a reality show, you know, somebody who's signing up for a, a cooking show or even a dating show isn't necessarily looking to make a, a career out of this, right? They're thinking it's, you know, it's a one and done thing. So when you're talking about the unionization aspect of this, um, practically speaking, how do you think that works? So
3: there's several different ways to look at this. Um, and, and, you know, I encourage you, uh, the SAG and WGA, all of that has been on the forefront lately. And if you look at SAG, for example, you have several different types of performers that are in the, the SAG-AFTRA union, right? Some of them are your Brad Pitt's, your George Clooney's, your Meryl Streep's, your your everyday people that you would recognize in in your roles. But there's also different protections for people that play bit roles, people that are uh, performing as stunt doubles, people that perform in various different ways. There's all these different types of unions. And if you look at it from that perspective, it's not as scary to look at it from you have cast members that are a reoccurring cast, right? You think like Vanderpump Rules, you think uh, The Housewives, and then you have shows like our show or The Ultimatum or whatever. And and those shows are, are one and done. But there isn't necessarily a one and done either, because then you oftentimes will get invited to another show or, you know, a show like Perfect Match, which is bringing every Netflix show into one. So there's several different ways that you need to look at it. We need to understand how that, that needs to happen for the different types of shows. But at the same time, like we already have a blueprint with SAG-AFTRA on how you coordinate you know, unionization efforts across different types of roles and different types
4: of, of players. Nick's 100% right. Like, I think it's the first thing to understand is these shows really blossomed and came about as a reaction to SAG-AFTRA strikes for, as a mitigating source of revenue. So the studios put in place, a lot of barriers to entry in terms of labor organizing, right? Because that's why these shows exist fundamentally. It's to create a revenue source when these traditional entertainment players are on strike. So one of the big things, for example, is the fact that we're classified as contract laborers. And according to national IRS guidelines, we are clearly not contract laborers. In fact, they they file W-2s for us, right? Which you file for full-time employees. So, you know, as soon as we get around that, that, that breaks down a barrier because you can't prohibit employees from organizing. So there's a lot of different steps to get there, and there's a lot of different ways to organize that aren't technically called unions. And so the point is, it's all about lowering that power differential, right? I think a really good framework to understand abuse and exploitation is in a power differential. The greater the difference in power, the higher the likelihood of abuse and exploitation. So that power differential is massive when it's an individual against an entertainment company. But if you can gather a lot of people together, whether you call it a union or not, that power differential gets a lot lower. And so there becomes a lot more of an ability to push back against that and to stand up for rights.
2: And my understanding is when it's a, sort of a docu-follow kind of series, it's a little trickier. You know, I, I spoke to SAG-AFTRA know, I'd reached out and, you know, the, the question was posed sort of to me, at what point do people cross the line and become professional performers versus um, being an interviewee as a subject of a documentary series? And, you know, it seems to be a, a little bit of a gray area in terms of determining what that is. But there are some areas that they see as, you know, more clear cut. For example, if you're a contestant, if you're a performer on American Idol, you know, they're seen in the eyes of the union as a professional performer. So it just seems as though those lines can be a little less clear when you're talking about delineating between, you know, who's who's the subject of a documentary versus, you know, a docu-follow series that's reality TV.
3: Well, I have two things to add to that one, I highly recommend everyone check out the movie subject because you'll find that in documentary filmmaking the same type of exploitation goes on as it does in a in a docu series like uh, reality TV. I would also encourage people you're not being followed around in these shows and having your everyday life documented. You are being put in manufactured situations in predetermined places to have conversations with predetermined people about predetermined things. So yeah, there's a little bit of wiggle room and things go different ways, but you get your talking points. They tell you where to go. They tell you who you're going to meet and how you're going to interact. And it really isn't as follow you around with the cameras as people may think.
4: Yeah, and I think you know, Blaine, you brought up a lot of good points about the complications and the blurred lines and the gray lines. And my personal opinion is those exist because it's convenient as a way to exploit labor. Uh, I personally think it's really easy. If if your work is making money for another person another company, you should have labor protections. That's it, right? Like these these different classifications. These like it's semantics. If if your labor is making money for a company or another person is making profit for them. <laughs> you're, you're you're an employee, and you should you deserve labor protections.
2: And then let's talk a little bit about the mental health care aspect of the UCAN Foundation. Um, you know what kind of resources are are supplied to reality TV participants. You know how are you working with other organizations to to facilitate that?
3: Yeah, so we have over 400 mental health professionals across the country. Um, I think I might have some in Canada too. I, I know mm-hmm. we've got we've got several across various states, right? And it varies by state. So what we're doing is we're uh, personally vetting these therapists and making sure that we have the ability to connect them with cast members that need support because it is difficult to find a therapist. It's also difficult, even more difficult to find a good one. And then on top of that, we're building out resources, as Jeremy mentioned earlier, to help people, you know, through workbooks and interactions and using our network of cast members to help them really prepare for what it's like to go on the show, if they should go on the show. How. To understand their rights, what they can and can't do, how they should think about things, self regulating when you're in that heightened state of nervous system. And then, you know, making sure that they have all of these resources available to them after the show as well as they immediately wake up
4: one day and are in the public eye and being scrutinized for everything they did and everything they didn't do. Yeah, we, we want to offer a comprehensive suite of services, right? We want everything from self-help guides to matching services with mental health professionals. Really, it's it's whatever someone needs. And I think all you, all you have to do, I think it was the Guardian that reported that there's been... Um, 38 suicides of reality TV cast members in the past decade or so. I mean, this is, it's, it's a real big problem. And, you know, again, Nick and I have talked to well over a hundred cast members and a lot of them are experiencing deep seated trauma um, and have been dealing with it in some way for 10 years. I've talked to several cast members who I'm, I'm the first person they've told this story to about their trauma in 10 years because they have not, Mm -hmm. because they've been so threatened about keeping it quiet, that they've been afraid to talk to anybody. So, I mean, there's, there's a massive problem here, and we really want to give people whatever resource they need to uh, to work through it and to help themselves.
2: And what kind of, when you're talking to all of these other former uh, cast members and participants, you know, what kind of mental health care were they offered during their time on the show um, I mean, I'll tell you, I, I reached out to the Love is Blind producers to ask about the mental health care aspect of it and was told that there are licensed mental health care professionals available at all points during the production and that people are free to leave whenever they want. Were those things that you felt like were clearly communicated to you at the time during your experience?
3: There's a difference between talking and executing. And in my experience, I didn't have any of those available to me, nor did my ex-wife as she had a panic attack and they forced us to film through it. So I think that would have been the great time for one of their psychologists or mental health professionals to step out and say, hey, I'm here. I'm here to help you and make sure that you get
4: through this. Yeah, and and again, I don't want to keep focusing on Love is Blind, but since we're specifically talking about this studio, um, I have not, you know, I've talked to probably... 30 or 40 cast members from the different seasons and not a single one of them has said they felt free to leave or that they were said there were psychologists available, right? So, look, I I can't say for certainty one way or another if what they're saying is true. All I can say is I, you know, every single account I've heard doesn't back that up.
2: Thank you guys so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. I appreciate your insight and sharing your experiences here.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much, Elaine.
0: All right, that's a wrap for this week. Thanks again uh, to Nick and Jeremy for making time to join the podcast. And of course, uh, definitely go read Elaine's piece over at The Ankler, diving into all things unscripted and reality. And remember, you can subscribe to The Ankler at theankler.com to get the latest from Richard my um, of course uh, daily wake up newsletter entertainment strategy guy plus all the latest insight from inside the hollywood executive suites from peter elaine claire and the rest of the ankler team you can of course follow the ankler at the ankler on social media platforms and of course a thank you to you for listening and uh, we'll see you next time